Hello, and welcome to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast, a podcast all about constructing your career in neurology. I'm your host, Sagari Bette, a movement disorders specialist at the Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Center of Boca Raton. Today, as part of the Work, Life, and Wellness series, we are going to be talking with Dr. Sarah Schaefer, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Yale School of Medicine and the founder of this podcast and Dr. Catherine Lefebvre, a neurologist in Saratoga Springs, certified in lifestyle medicine, and co-founder of the Women Neurologist Group, WNG, about handling unexpected family health issues. Thank you for joining us, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today, Sarah and Catherine. Thanks for having us. Thanks. To dive right in, I'd like to invite each of you to share the unexpected health issues that arose in your lives to the extent that you feel comfortable doing so. I can start. So I had my second baby in February of 2020, so not the best time, <laughs> right before the pandemic hit. And um, and we didn't know that anything was wrong with her until she was about five weeks old. Um, and then it was clear that she had um, significant medical problems and ultimately um, required a surgery. She was going, she has biliary atresia. So she was going into liver failure. And I was still on maternity leave when she had her surgery at seven weeks. And, um, then went back to work over the summer and um, it became clear over the summer that uh, the surgery didn't work to the extent that we wanted it to. And she quickly progressed to liver failure and cirrhosis and, and needed to be li listed for transplant. So she was in and out of the hospital and then, and then in the hospital for about three months. So ultimately ended up at a hospital to more than two hours away from where we live. So that's kind of the long and short of it. It was, it was a surprise and, um, and a long haul. Yeah. So I think my story has a lot of similarities with Sarah's. Um, my health emergency or health crisis, family health crisis also aroused when we had our second child. Um, our son was born in 2015. Similar to Sarah, there were no problems predicted during the pregnancy. Um, but soon after he was born, he was about three weeks old, he started having seizures. And being a neurologist, I might have uh, detected those earlier as possibly another person would have because they were pretty subtle. Um, uh, and then, you know, we kind of uh, contacted a friend, a pediatric neurologist at my institution, which led ultimately to an MRI and a diagnosis of polymicrogyria, which ultimately has led to ongoing um, seizures and quite significant disability. Thank you both for sharing. So to put these in context of your lives at the time, what were your careers like and your lives like before and immediately during these events? Well, I, I was at Yale um, as an assistant professor of neurology. I was <clears throat> also serving as the associate program director for the residency and the fellowship director. So I had a number of hats and I was working full time and my husband was working full time. And we also had a, a, a three-year-old son 
who was at home with us a lot more than we expected him to be because of the pandemic. And, you know, I, I took my maternity leave uh, as expected. And then I went back full time. Uh, we didn't know yet what was going to happen. She got admitted a few times over that summer. Each small admission kept turning into more days and more days. And I actually, I found myself sometimes sleeping with her at the hospital and then waking up in the morning, putting on my work clothes and walking across the street to clinic. And I was just in survival mode. I met with the leadership. I, I let my vice chair know, um, who was also my division chief at the time. I let the, the clinic director know what was going on. I was very open with everybody about it and, and with my colleagues because I knew that I wasn't going to be working at my normal capacity. And I was very lucky that I, I had been at the institution for a while. And so I think people knew that I that I'm not a slacker, that I'm not gonna, you know, make up excuses to not do my job. And and so there was an enormous amount of support. And actually the one of my supervisors was the first person who said, Do you want to go part time? And I was like, no, no, it's fine. No. <laughs> and then I, a couple of weeks later, I was like, yes, I do. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I went to 70% FTE actually the day after she got admitted for what turned into a three month period of time when she got transferred to the other hospital and got listed for transplant and ultimately got her transplant. I pulled out of all satellite clinics. I had been going to a couple of different clinics in around Connecticut. Um, and I said, I just want everything to be as simple as humanly possible. I consolidated my clinics to Monday and Wednesday so that I could uh, travel to Boston from Thursday to Sunday. And so my husband and I ended up switching twice a week. And they just took me completely out of inpatient time, uh, no questions asked. You know, they, the program director stopped asking me to do things. I mean, everybody just pulled back and I stopped saying yes to everything. I mean, I didn't do preclinical workshops. I didn't, I didn't review papers. I, I said no to everything and, and I just simplified everything as much as, as I could. Yeah, so in my case, um, when my son was born, I was actually, I had just been promoted um, to the director of the Movement Disorder Division um, at the academics institution I was working at. I had started very much job two um, years earlier as actually the only movement specialist. So, so I was busy <laughs> and I was doing all the things, right? In addition to seeing a full clinic um, on most days, um, I was quite heavily engaged in research trials, um, in teaching, um, inpatient work, you know, all the things. 
And, uh, and so I was just going on maternity leave for about um, six weeks as I had planned and I came back. And um, so then be some seizure history unfolded. And um, so I didn't immediately change my workload or my, my uh, trajectory per se. And I think part of it, you know, my son was physically healthy um, other than the neurologic um, issues, which was mostly the seizures. Um, so, and otherwise he was just a tiny little baby. <laughs> um, so my husband is a stay-at-home uh, dad and uh, was uh, since our daughter had been born two years before that. Um, so he was really taking the majority um, on all of the work and the doctor's appointments that had to be done, you know, I would occasionally obviously go to a doctor's appointment, um, but um, it wasn't, there wasn't sort of this immediate um, need for um, um, to high time demands on me. I think, and we'll come probably to this a little bit later. I mean, of course, I was sort of, you know, thinking about the future a lot, you know, uh, getting sort of this life altering diagnosis, your, your child has a, you know, incurable neurologic illness. Um, you know, it, it, it obviously got me thinking a lot about what is his future going to look like? What does that mean for our family? Uh, but in the um, immediate um, circumstances, I did actually um, continue my academic trajectory, um, did ultimately end up a lot of traveling, attending conferences, giving talks, and, and really putting a lot of uh, the burden of um, uh, caregiving on my husband. Do you think or did you feel at the time that you had truly accepted this change? What I mean by that is that as physicians, uh, we're so focused on our work. We've done years and decades of training uh, to become specialists and focus on our patients um, in a way uh, that is or can be very unilateral. So to suddenly take a look at the focus and think, oh, is this different and Am I truly okay with this difference? Have I accepted it? How do you think you went about that process? That's a great question. I, I did a lot of soul searching. I, I've always been an extremely motivated person. I'm always trying to do a million things. I had this idea of what my career was going to look like and when it was going to look like that, you know, um, just pushing, 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 as many of us do. And when I realized that I couldn't do that, you know, that that I had to take a period of time, and I didn't know how long that period of time was going to be, right? Um, I had a crisis. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, but I had this whole idea of myself and what are other people going to think if I'm, you know, if I'm not doing, you know, what I usually do. And, and if I'm not succeeding in the way that I feel I need to succeed and, and I'm letting my patients down. And I mean, it was the whole thing, right. <laughs> and, uh, I ultimately came to the realization after talking to some other people that, and this may seem obvious, but you know, we have our whole career, right. We have decades, decades of career and, one thing that this podcast has helped me realize is how much your career can change over those decades. And, and okay, I can still have these goals if I decide at the end of all of this, that those still are my goals. Um, but those goals don't need to be now. 
(laughs) they can be later, you know, and that's okay. And as far as feeling like my colleagues were going to be bitter that they had to cover for me or uh, that my patients were going to be annoyed that they had to change their schedule or go to a different provider. I I realized with all the feedback that I was getting that this was this is an emergency and and we you know we are in a profession of empathetic people, right? Their their job is to be empathetic, right? And and I got nothing but empathy. I mean, every, people were like, I'll cover your clinics anytime you want. And I'm like, you're an epilepsy doctor. I'm movement. I don't think that's going to work. And they're like, I'll do it. I'll do it anyway. You know, <laughs> I mean, people wanted to help. They really wanted to help. And, and I was just so grateful. That's great to hear, Sarah. Yeah, I think for me, again, it was a bit of a different trajectory. And, and there wasn't, um, after we had initially adjusted to this new reality, um, the the work of raising this child was initially not that different from any other child we would have had. Um, so for me, I think it became, you know, as time goes on, went on, things, things did change. Um, so I actually, um, initially enjoyed some of the flexibility life in academic medicine can bring. And, and as Sarah was saying, you know, sometimes you don't have a hundred percent clinic, right? I did have some protected time actually for research, uh, which allowed me for, for some flexibility with, uh, with needs that, that were arising. In my case, the children's hospital was also just directly to my workplace. So uh, if he needed some admission for like an EG monitoring, you know, I can kind of relate to what Sarah said, you know, staying in the hospital overnight, going back to work the next day. So it sounds very familiar. Um, But overall, you know, I felt I felt we were doing fine. We were coping well, you know, we had a lot of uh, resources, you know, um, uh, at our fingertips. Um, And then actually, um, then our son was four years old in 2019. I actually made a transition for my career and um, joined a larger academic institution where I uh, kind of took on um, a role to kind of build a program for functional movement disorder care and, and research. And I was kind of ready to dive in and actually, um, you know, sort of uh, focus more on, on a subspecialized uh, niche within what I was doing before. And, and then the pandemic hit. <laughs> so similar to what Sarah was saying, it was sort of a, you know, a, for me, it was bad timing. I moved um, uh, institutions about six months before the start of COVID. Um, everything shut down. Um, so it became very difficult, honestly, to, to uh, navigate and, and manage. And um, after we did that for half a year or so, you know, that got me to a point where really we evaluated um, things and, and my son had no care at all. <laughs> so <laughs> the schools all went virtually and we had to log him into um, a, um, a computer, a Zoom monitor in his wheelchair. Um, he has cortical vision impairment, so that uh, just didn't make sense. You know, he couldn't even see anything on that monitor, but yet we had to log him in for an hour each morning to not lose a spot in the school. So there were just sort of some major irritations that uh, that arouse over time uh, that um, um, added up. And in addition to to other issues in my life, you know, um, ultimately led me to to make a quite uh, dramatic career change yet again and uh, leave academic medicine and join a community-based neurology practice. Now both of you are 
back at work, Sarah, full-time, Catherine, at your community-based neurological practice, do you feel that how your work responsibilities are structured now is more favorable to your family situation? Yeah. So I I did 70% FTE for at least a year. And then I kind of creeped up to 85%. And then finally, only a couple months ago, went to 100%. And that's that's because there was so much unpredictability to my daughter's illness, even after transplant. You know, she did really well for a year. And then, oh, her hemoglobin's four. She needs to go to the PICU. We don't know what's going on. You know, like those kinds of things. So I didn't feel comfortable creeping back up earlier. I also, I want to say that, you know, after her transplant, after like the the biggest thing was over, right? I was talking to my therapist who I started seeing during all of this and said, okay, well, you know, uh, it's over and um, and I should get back on the horse, right? I should go- start saying yes to everything. And she was like, whoa you know, you need time to recover. And she was absolutely right. Like you, you know, like it was a trauma, right? And I needed time to, to just not worry about going full tilt right away again. And I was also, you know, spending time talking to three different pharmacies and referrals and two different hospitals. And she was seeing like six different subspecialists, right? So um, I was doing all that too, and I just didn't have the mental energy to go back fully before before I did. Now that I'm back full time, I, I do feel like things are good. Um, you know, I, I timed going back full time to when she started school, and we had not sent her to daycare before that because of concern about infection. And my husband also is a stay at home dad now. He wasn't before all of this, but now he is, and. So yeah, I think I think it's good. The other thing as a side note that I realized is that when I went 70%, I was actually at 110%, which I had not known and um <clears throat> good good thing to keep track of when you're in academics, right? Cuz they won't tell you. So I was able to drop more clinics and I have less clinics now than I did at the beginning. Yes, yeah, so I've been in my job now in a, in a community-based neurology practice for a little bit over 2 years and it's definitely been a, a, a better fit for for my family, um, and just because of a you know me being home and uh, the mo- the thing that I've said most no to is really the the travel, conference attendance, giving talks, and um, I was so in demand, you know, and, and I think part of it was really uh, specializing, subspecializing on a on a niche topic. <laughs> so I was uh, I was just in these in these uh, past two years before my transition, you know, talks also went virtual, and um, it, it was just it was just a lot, you know, and I had I had difficulty saying no. Um, so I was I was just uh, always prepping, preparing for a talk, trying to write on a research grant, uh, you know, I was I was always kind of working overtime, whether it was nights or weeks weekends. And both things, um, you know, are gone now. Uh, so it's just been a lot easier to find time to spend with my family and, and also support my husband more than I was able to previously. Now, despite all that, um, so I have always um, worked 100%. And, and again, as Sarah said, that means very different things in academic medicine sometimes, because uh, these uh, percentages do add up. And, you know, we're all passionate, driven people. And, you know, sometimes our jobs don't feel like jobs. 
jobs. It feels like passion projects, right? And and we love what we do, but you know, we we all just have twenty four hours in our days, and sometimes it just uh you know time it takes some time to realize that we, we can't just give and give and give and, and and have very little left for our families. So yeah, I would say um, my my new job has also been amazing in um, making last minute changes if I need to. Um, my son has had some long um, hospital stays. There have been uh, definitely challenges, and uh, and with my current um, job, it's just easier to navigate them because there's less unpredictability in my own schedule. I know we've been talking a lot about your careers. I did want to shift gears a little bit and ask you both how you navigated this dual role as the physician with the most medical knowledge in the family and as the caregiver, the parent, uh, the partner in your lives. This was also very challenging for me at the beginning because I felt like it was a a life or death situation for my daughter. And I felt like I needed to bring the medical expertise to the situation and advocate for her in every way that I could. And, you know, I, so I spent a lot of time on PubMed. I was, I was a very annoying parent to the, her doctor. Anyway, I, you know, eventually I just, I, I had to realize that, you know, I'm not an expert in pediatric transplant hepatology, and I never will be. And she has pediatric transplant hepatologists at two institutions who know what they're doing and have the experience. And, and you know, I can, I can know the information and have it at hand, and, and I can interpret all the medical stuff for my husband and but i but i can't be her doctor so that was one thing and then you know the other thing is is that my husband as um catherine's uh was was a stay at home dad and so he was bringing her to a lot of her appointments and i was trying to call in and things like that if i could between patients but i did feel a a big responsibility to be there in order to hear what all the doctors had to say to ask all the right questions I knew the system and and worked within the system. So even just getting the referrals people to approve something, I felt like I was far more capable of doing that than he was, let alone, you know, she had an NG tube for a long time and she would pull it out. And I, so I'd be putting it back in at home so that we didn't have to go to the emergency department, you know, flushing her pick line, all that stuff was stuff that I was doing. So it was, it was just, like I said, that that additional cognitive and emotional burden, you know, even when my time was less taken up, I feel like the cognitive and emotional burden of that extra role was so high that I'm glad that I stayed part-time for, for as long as I did. Yeah, I think for me, it was, you know, when we initially got this diagnosis, right? Who has ever heard of polymicrogyria other than a neurologist? No one. <laughs> so, you know, and it, it obviously I was in a much better position than my husband and other family members or other people in our life to really understand the implication of this diagnosis. And, you know, I remember then he was initially diagnosed, um, uh, our pediatric neurologist, who was also a friend and co-resident formerly of mine, you know, gave me this hug and then said, you know, the MRI is, is abnormal. 
we're going to be with you for the long term. And, you know, although I knew the reality of this, you know, this isn't just a blip and, you know, you can't just cure this, um, this diagnosis. It was still very, very hard to hear. And, you know, I think it took a lot, much longer time for my husband to ultimately understand the reality of what it would mean to have a, a child with profound disabilities. Um, and then over time, you know, our roles and, you know, have, you know, sh- changed and adapted. And then he has been uh, so wonderful with our son and has connected to this child on a, on a level, you know, that it just in a, uh, be present in a different way. Um, and, you know, of course, it's also been um, uh, having advantages to be a neurologist and, and have a, you know, a, the, the language available to me that, that other people might not. So I would say, yeah, it comes definitely with both um, challenges um, and also advantages. So as an example, when my son was admitted with the status epilepticus, I was able to, you know, talk to um, a friend for sort of a second opinion, right? As, as it kind of goes, there's, there's always uh, lots of differences in opinion and what will be next. And so it was it was very helpful to kind of uh, get sort of a curbside opinion. And, and I know, as Sarah said, sometimes we, we don't want to overdo it. We don't want to micromanage things. But on the other hand, it can um, certainly also be, be very helpful in certain situations. You've alluded to this and we've talked about uh, interacting with the healthcare system and how specialized medical knowledge can be of benefit. But how else has this experience informed your perspective on navigating our healthcare system and what our patients and their caregivers go through? Oh my God, it was a nightmare. Um, I don't know if Catherine's had similar experiences, but like, like I said, I mean, sometimes I was dealing with multiple pharmacies, three or four pharmacies, a compounding pharmacy, some other pharmacy in Florida. Our insurance is basically an HMO type situation. And so any, even though she had to be airlifted to Boston Children's Hospital for transplant, you know, subsequently, absolutely everything that happened at Boston had to be specially approved as an outside provider, trying to you know, get in touch, even get in touch with our team, sending a MyChart message and it goes nowhere. <laughs> it was, it was, it was infuriating. I, I mean, I, I remember talking to somebody who told me that tacrolimus was not, had not been shipped because it wasn't approved. And is there an alternative for my infant daughter who just had a, a liver transplant? And I, I about exploded. I mean, and I had people on the inside, you know, I had the phone numbers of her providers, which I tried to use very judiciously. There was a pharmacist whose family member had a similar or had the same diagnosis. And, uh, um, and he, I always went to him when things weren't going well from a pharmacy perspective. And he was wonderful. I was within the system that I was trying to navigate and it was still a nightmare. So uh, it's given me a lot of insight into what our patients and their caregivers go through and and how difficult this would be without medical literacy. I can't imagine. 
Yeah, unfortunately, my experience is, is not any better. And uh, certainly, as Sarah said, you know, it really, you kind of know it, be, <laughs> you, that, that things are difficult, right, from a physician perspective, and you have to do peer-to-peer on calls and prioritizations. But navigating it from a parent or caregiver perspective is, is really very difficult. And um uh, some people have asked, like, well, is your husband going to go back to work now? And I mean, if he wouldn't stay at home and actually do all these phone calls all the time, right? I mean, even if you have your prescriptions and everything in place and everything is standard and, you know, we, we get diapers um, from as a medical supply, you know, there's always, 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 always things that fall uh, through the cracks and you have to make calls or you get overcharged, you know, so it, it's just very, very difficult. Um, and, and really to know the different language, the insurance language is very challenging. And, you know, also from a, a kind of a patient uh, navigation uh, perspective, as Sarah was saying, you know, communication can be challenging. And then sometimes the need to see multiple specialists is, is just overwhelming. And um, uh, I, I never use words like non-compliant anymore. <laughs> and I think there's definitely been this, you know, perspective, you know, it, it's really um, often a, a structural um, issue and the burdens we put and expectations we put on patients and um, and caregivers that are just impossible to keep up. And just as a, a very small example, our neurologist at some point told us, you know, you really um, should, um, the, the vitamin D levels are low, we need to do something about that to prevent and um, osteoporosis. And so my assumption was just, well, he could write us a script or his main pediatrician would write us a script. But now he was referred to the special bone clinic that was in a, in a uh, far away part of town and, you know, required an extra half day um, uh, to take off. And, you know, we never went. <laughs> so I ultimately just got the, the vitamin D over the counter and we just started giving it to him. And it, it's just, it can sometimes sound ridiculous, but sometimes it's just the one too much one too many things you know we were lucky ultimately to move um and uh you know we one of the decisions that informed my latest career move uh, was specifically to move to a state um so we're in new york now uh where services for disabled uh people are generally uh better than in some other states and unfortunately not everyone has that luxury to just pack up their things and move states but but there are um great differences um to available care um, depending on what part of the country people live in In retrospect, as the dust has settled, the descriptions of your journeys can seem deceptively condensed. What would you say is a reasonable timeline for someone in a similar situation to expect to uh, take to adapt their lives and their careers? I think everybody's different. You know, I mean, you're hearing two different perspectives right here. And I think everybody's going to be different in terms of what they need, you know, and there are a lot of things to keep in mind. I mean, when I went part-time, I was like, what's the lowest I can go and still have insurance for myself and my family? You know, that's a reality of what I had to think about. Oh, I just took maternity leave. So there was all of my like FMLA for the year. Like, how does that work? You know, home finances. Both of us now have stay-at-home dads. Um, it sounds like both of our husbands had careers before with incomes and now don't. And so how do we su- support the family as well? Um, how much do we need to do that? And um, and then, 
everybody's emotional reaction is going to be different. I mean, I had trouble for, I still have a little bit of trouble walking past the pediatric surgical family waiting room in the hospital. I, I had to avoid it for a long time. I have trouble seeing transplant patients on the neurology consult service. All I can say is everybody's journey is going to be different and give yourself the time that you need. And it's okay to do that. Um, you're going to be a a better doctor and a better employee if you come back refreshed. Yeah, I would definitely second that. I mean, as Sarah said, it, it's going to be different demands and, and needs depending on everyone's situation. If you're caring with an elderly family member that, that requires caregiving or, or someone with cancer versus someone with a lifelong disability. But, you know, interestingly, I had... Uh, learned a bit about grief um, just the year before um, our son was born because I had lost my mother um, very unexpectedly. And, you know, I think both of these events have, have just sort of taught me, you know, grief is not following a linear trajectory, right? There's going to be, it's more like, you know, people compare it more to waves in the ocean, right? They kind of come and go and, and might hit you unexpected and in unexpected ways. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's hard to generalize, but I think, um, you know, looking at um, a family unit and, it, you know, uh, things, how, how things might work out is also very dependent on what outside help is available or might might become available. Uh, so there's certainly many different factors that play into, into uh, one's decision making. In hindsight, would either of you have done anything differently? I think you just learn as you go. <laughs> So it's really, you know, if, if one, one thing I have really learned from, from this whole experience is you can plan life less than you think, right? I mean, I was on this trajectory. I had this um, endowed professorship at a, at a very young age at, a, at an academic institution. I was very academically minded and, and, and doing all the things. Uh, but ultimately, I have, you know, one one could uh, uh, reasonably say I've taken uh, a big step back in my career, you know, but it, it really changes, you know, things, things like that change your perspective so much. And, and, and ultimately, you hear this from so many people, right? Because for all of us, I mean, as uh, getting older means, you know, dealing with unexpected illness and grief at some point in our lives for, for pretty much every one of us. And um, yeah, I mean, I think it, it changes your perspective on uh, the balance of uh, professional and personal uh, life and, and how to how to kind of all make it work. But um, yeah, I think uh, I think in the end, um, uh, family ultimately um, has to come first. <laughs> and uh, and um, I'm, I feel fortunate that I found a way to still have a full time career to make positive um, impacts on many people's lives now in my community. Um, uh, but yet be also be more available for my family. For me, I having that period of time after her transplant, when I was part-time and home uh, one to two days a week before she started school, I just, I loved that time with her and it was wonderful. Well, my kids are young to be able to take a break in the middle of the week really focus on them outside of the craziness of after work, you know, dinner, bedtime, etc. And and honestly, this isn't quite in answer to your question, but I would have 
done a part-time situation earlier for my son when he was younger. If, uh, if I could go back in time, because I think irrespective of all of the medical stuff, it was, it was very valuable for me to have that time. And with her, you know, I think, I don't know. I don't know if I would have done it differently. Uh, people asked me, why didn't you take off? You know, why didn't you stop working altogether? But I, I really felt like I needed the distraction. Honestly, I needed to continue working. I needed to feel like I was being productive and being um, useful and, you know, see, seeing my patients. I needed to feel like I wasn't just wallowing at home, staring at the ceiling and thinking about what could happen. Um, so it was the right decision for me. Any final words of wisdom for our listeners? Well, I think, you know, with everything being said, we've talked a lot about the difficulties, obviously, of, of dealing with um, severe illness in, in a child. And again, similar things certainly applies for dealing uh, with illness or other difficulties in, in other family members. I think overall, actually fortunate um, to be a physician. And I think our careers um, do allow for a relatively great amount of flexibility and career shift, right, as, as is sort of covered in other episodes of this podcast. So despite all the negatives being said of being a physician and having high burnout rates, you know, we have actually ability to, you know, work in a variety of clinical settings, non-clinical settings, you know, industry or, um, you know, do consulting work. So I think it's sort of reassuring to kind of know, you know, if circumstances change, if life changes, there are ways, um, you know, to to pivot, transition, and uh, and still work in the job that we train for. I absolutely echo that. You know, you just have to, I guess, be brave enough to jump. I didn't jump anywhere, but um, I, I would say in addition to that, if something like this happens, you will hopefully be at a place where you receive support from leadership, from colleagues. You know, you shouldn't be asked to find your own coverage, figure out where the patients that have been canceled are going to go. You know, you you don't have the emotional energy for that, right? Um, in situations like these, and and I I was I I feel so blessed that my the leadership at my institution just did it didn't ask questions even when a year later when she got admitted to the PICU I alluded to this earlier with a hemoglobin of 4 I was on service <laughs> and I called my vice chair and I said I'm on service my daughter is going to the PICU I don't know what to do and he was like you're not on service I'm on service now starting now you know and that kind of support is out there and it's necessary in these situations. And if you're not getting that kind of support, then it may be, it may be a good option to, to look for somewhere where you're going to have a little more flexibility and support. And yeah, I mean, as a, maybe a final word, you know, this certainly might sound very cliche, but I, I think it is just true for all of us. The more we deal with personal difficulties in our own life, it does certainly open our eyes and make us more empathetic to other people's struggle. And, you know, it's so easy sometimes to get frustrated in clinic, right? And, and, and people have demands from all sides and write inbox messages. But behind all that is, is usually a suffering human, right? Is an anxious human, is, is an overwhelmed person um, with um, a whole host of problems that we often are completely unaware of. 
And again, if nothing else, um, I, I try to always keep that in mind and, and uh, temper my responses. Uh, you know, if something if something is irritating, it probably just hits on a, on a deeper level. And, and I think um, seeing that and recognizing that is kind of a step to actually avoiding bur- avoiding burnout and and really just seeing uh, seeing people for you know how they really are. They're, they're looking for help and they're looking for answers as as all of us do. That's such an important point, and I completely agree with you. I want to thank you both for joining me today. I want to say how grateful I am for both of you to share your experiences, and I feel very inspired by your strength, your perspectives, and also the hope that you offer for me and for our listeners in how we can approach our own lives and our own challenges as we navigate our careers in medicine. Thank you again. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast was created and produced by Sarah Schaefer. It is not recorded as an official podcast of any institution or organization. The podcast is unfunded. Opinions are those of the individual participants. Music by Audrey Nath. Artwork by Shivani Ghoshal. Want more content like this? Be sure to subscribe to the Neurology Nuts and Bolts podcast on Buzzsprout to hear more about constructing your career in neurology. Follow us on Twitter at NeuroBolts and on Facebook at Neurology Nuts and Bolts to stay up to date on new content and give us feedback on what you want to hear. And tell your friends. Thanks for joining us.